Welcome to Protecting Our Freedoms podcast. I'm your host, Joy Vacherbeck, here with my co-host, Mark Renahan. How are you today, Joy? I'm good. How are you, Mark? I'm fantastic. And this is the final in our four-part series that we are doing on focusing on Cuba from the 1950s to the present. This is a special episode because we're welcoming back both Dr. Valdez and Dr. Ledon. We are going to hear from their different experiences in Cuba and leaving Cuba. Yes, and if you wanted to see our earlier shows, you can check us out on YouTube at the American Security Council Foundation, Protecting Our Freedoms. We're also on Rumble and Podbean and all the formats that you can find your podcasts on. And again, as Joy stated, today we have a special show. We have both two incredible men, two very fun and incredibly understandable guests, might I add, Drs. Ledon and Drs. Valdez. Both of them grew up in Cuba, have incredible stories, and both are authors. Dr. Valdez's book, Tarmac, can be purchased at Amazon, as well as Dr. Ladon's book here, A Cold July in Cuba. And I read them both. They are incredibly fast and easy and entertaining reads, and I would highly recommend them if you had a plane ride. But anyway, Doc and Doc, how are you? And thanks for being with us again. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank so you. we were talking earlier and we discussed briefly offline how you guys met and, and we were discussing, uh, I believe it's Salamanca University. Am I saying that correctly? Correct. Correct. All right. So, but I, I wanted to go back and start over. So for those of you um, who may have caught our earlier shows, uh, we went over both of their books and both of their stories are incredible. But I am curious. Now, I obviously, I know you guys didn't know each other um, growing up, but could you each describe your upbringing and, and were they similar? Or were they different? I know you both of you had prominent fathers, but who were in different directions in terms of the supports of the people. I just thought maybe to give give everyone a, a view of Cuba from the different views you two gentlemen have. Uh, what, what, Fred, why don't you why don't you take this one uh, initially? Uh, sure. Give a view of your growing up, and I'll and I'll do the same. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm from, uh, my dad was a landowner in Cuba. We had a couple of farms. Uh, we lived in a small town, and a big house uh, that came from my great-grandfather. Uh, and the, well, the, bigger, the bigger farm was nearby. So it, it was pretty much in many ways in the 50s. No different than a small town in USA. It could have been a small town in Oklahoma or Kansas. Uh, you know, where life was safe and life was fine, and uh, and everybody knew everybody. And and you know, my family was well known in town from my grandfather on down. Uh, and uh, yeah, I grew up pretty much uh, riding my bicycle around town, adventures, and so on. Uh, going to the farm, fishing. Uh, hunting, you know, wild turkeys. We had wild turkeys uh, that used to go in between the sugarcane uh, rows, and that's the easiest way to get them. Uh, so I had a shotgun, and we, you know, so so it, it was it was uh, pretty much that kind of life. And and the one point that I would like to bring forth later in the podcast is that uh, that was not unique. That was pretty much. In spite of uh, in spite of other problems and so on, you know, some corruption, whatever, life was good. Life was prosperous, and life was good. 
So basically that was it. Uh, and then overnight, uh, things uh, changed pretty much overnight. Uh, and like, I think we made that point in the last podcast or the first one I did, uh, that uh, after the changes, uh, everything was different. You know, after the revolution came and all that, everything was different. Everything was different. Life, life. Uh, you had to grow up fast. Uh, life changed. You couldn't talk. You couldn't. You didn't feel free. Uh, so, uh, so you know. And I heard the same things back then. Uh, this will not last. Don't worry. Just a matter of two or three months. This will be over. <laughs> yeah. And that was, of course, uh, sixty-five or so, whatever years ago. So basically, that was it. And the way I came here, uh, maybe I can, you know, I'll let you go, uh, you know, give them a little uh, bio on, on you, how you got here, wherever. Yeah, I, I, you know, my upbringing was a little different than Fred because I lived in, in the capital. I lived in a, in a big city. But if I have to describe growing up uh, in Cuba, um, there's a big chasm uh between what it was before the revolution and, and after. Of course, in my case, there was a big convulsion within my family because of my father being captured by, by Batista's government. But, but growing up, even though you know, Havana was the capital and it was sort of the center of, of culture and university life and so on in Cuba, it was, very, it was a placid, calm, um, very um, very comfortable life. I, I you know I remember you know having my mom at home. You know we had a cook and I had a nanny, and it was you know going to birthday parties on the weekend. We would go to the beach or go to the uh, to the yacht club. Uh, you know for dinner, uh, my grandfather would pick me up and take me to the Spanish restaurant, um, which my my grandfather was. Uh, was a Spaniard, uh, so and and then contrast that with all of a sudden my my parents uh, have to go in exile. We, we were sent to a province with my grandmother uh, for the time that they were in exile in Europe, and, and that life was. I mean, it was you know we were obviously out of sorts. We were not at home. We wanted to get back to Havana to our friends and to our normal life, uh, and then. My, my real experiences begin after the revolution because at the time of the revolution, I was really only six years old, you know, five years old. Um, so it's from 1960 or 1959 to the time I left, 67, that I remember things very vividly. And then life was, was very different than what it had been before. Well, despite like some small changes, of course, and whatever, would you say that I know both of you have children would you say that your child, your children's upbringing here in the U.S., yours was very similar prior to the events in Cuba? I mean, it was a you, you as a kid, you didn't know any Absolutely. different than you know you hunting turkeys and uh, you know you know hanging out in Havana. So, would you say that's a fair assessment? I, I agree. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, pretty much the same. Uh, and you know, Havana was Havana was Havana. I think I said that last time. Uh, I, I, some of my best memories are going to Havana 
I love going to Havana. My dad took me to one of the baseball games, the pro games. Uh, Havana, had, I think you mentioned that in the last uh, podcast, uh, had three professional baseball teams. Uh, Marianao, which is uh, like a working class type team. Almendares, which is a huge team. And Havana, which is my favorite team. And there was another pro team in in, uh, in Las Villas province, where I'm from, uh, Cienfuegos. So one of my vivid memories was my dad taking me to Havana, staying at the Grand Plaza Hotel, which is a hotel like you know from the fifties with the brass uh, uh, handles on on the stairs, and I mean this is one of those things you see in movies. And then of course the next day, listening to the buses. Uh, you know, San Juan was a small town. There were no local buses. It was a very small town. But Havana had buses running through the night. And, and to me, that was just, just an incredible experience to hear the buses on the street uh, and, and people going out having food at uh, 10 o'clock at night and 11 o'clock at night, uh, bubbling with, with activity. Uh, and then going to the baseball game, uh, seeing the grass, smelling the hot dogs, uh, no different than a kid from Kansas or whatever going to a, a baseball game here. Uh, you don't forget that those experiences are absolutely incredible. Uh, I remember, I know it's a small thing, but uh, Havana, you could, orange crush was one of my favorite drinks, is soda. But Havana, they had a bottle that had a white mouth. And it was only found in, in Havana. You, you didn't see that soda in the rest of the island. And that was one of my things, you know, going to, and then going to a Chinese restaurant uh, called Canton, uh, which I loved. And they knew my father, and we would go there, order fried rice. So, you know, all that world, all that world caved in. All that world was broken in a flash. In a flash, basically. I think we talked about that on the last podcast, about the first two with both of you. And then you said the middle class left and the elites were leaving. Yeah, yeah, the, the exile, mostly the first wave was the people that had to leave, life or death, uh, you know, the, the higher class. But then it was followed by the, by the professional class, the doctors, the dentists, the lawyers, the business owners, and so on. And then, and then the lower middle class. And, uh, you know, one of the stories that's really impacting, and I think, it's understandable because it's a story of of all the exiles in the world. I mean, it's it's there's similar stories across the board. But when my dad first came to this country, he had never done any physical work. Uh, the first thing he did actually was uh, he was picked up in a truck uh, picking up tomatoes at a, at a farm in, in Homestead you know, in the South here and have crops and stuff like that. And he went, he did what he had to do. But after that, he was washing dishes at the Columbus Hotel downtown Miami. And one day he came home and he was really bothered. And my mom said, what's the matter with you? And he said, I saw a man washing dishes next to me. He looked familiar. I approached him and he was one of the top heart surgeons in Cuba that had treated his father. And my father recognizes him and walks to him and says, what are you doing here? Your hands, your hands, you know, he was famous, famous guy. I can't remember the name. And, and he told my dad, he said, I have to do whatever I have to do to put food on the table. Uh, those are things which is probably part of all exiles that I think need to be reminded, taught, uh, 
and this 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 podcast is a great great thing because you don't hear there's some typical things and you know other venues are no this is totally forgotten it becomes political and this is not political this is human it, it's a human condition it's, it's a human story and that's what i think what you guys do is, is a fantastic job doing this type of uh, podcast well i can tell you that uh, my own opinion on cuba has evolved incredibly oh, yes. since this has started mm-hmm. i've actually you know looked into a lot about it and it's a fascinating country that i think a lot of people don't know what happened there or what's happening there now that has, you know, that made Joy and I think, you know, we need to look into this and, and yes. get some interesting people on the show. So we're, we're super glad to have gentlemen like you who are yes. willing to talk about it. I know some people may not want to share their experiences, but both of your stories are just so, <clears throat> I mean, to me, surreal that I think of myself as a child and, and, and I grew up quite well. My, my parents took incredible care of their children. And I can't even imagine if I was snatched away from my, you know, hockey games and playing with my friends and stuff and, and to, you know, you got to go here. It, it just must have been. And to overcome that, might I add, and become doctors and authors is just it adds to the incredibleness of the story. Yes. Very kind of you. Thank you. Yes. So, yeah. We wanted to switch up a tad bit, and Joy's going to have some questions. But yesterday on part three, we had with us an incredible guest. Uh, he's a retired special agent, Jim Goldman, and he had led, he was a former ICE director in Miami, and he had led the Alien Gonzalez raid. Now, uh, we have all talked about this a few times yes, offline. Yeah. We haven't talked about it much online. A little bit, I think. Yeah, a little bit. But Joy had a couple of quick questions she wanted to, to throw you. Of course, we're hard-hitting journalists here, gentlemen, so, <laughs> you know, but I'm, I'm kidding. But anyway. Well, we spoke to, uh, am I losing my audio here? No, you do. Um, we spoke to Agent Goldman about uh, the wet foot, dry foot policy for Cubans and how that was discontinued in 2017 uh, during the Obama administration when he opened up diplomatic relations. And then, of course, the Trump administration had closed it. Uh, so what are your thoughts, both both of your thoughts or opinions on um, whether diplomatic relations should be remain, remain open or closed? That's, 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 a, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> Joy asked it, not me. Let me explain to you why. Uh, one of the things, because I didn't live in the United States for, for a long time, uh, and Fred, I'm just going to start and then I'll, I'll let you, you, you go. You go. Um, one of the things that kind of shocked me when I, when I first came to the United States is how strongly the Cuban exile community felt about no relations at all with Cuba. Let's completely blockade them, block them out, do everything we can until those those guys, those Castro brothers are gone. Me, that seemed the wrong approach. And what I mean by that is, remember that the, the reason they have been uh, able to stay in power for so long is the isolation of Cuba. And that isolation was aided by the embargo, the travel bans, etc. I I still think that if that hadn't been enacted, just the flux of tourism and, and people may have turned the tide a lot sooner because people would have been exposed, like they began to be exposed in the in the eighties and nineties when the tourism from Canada and Spain and Mexico started coming in, people started to realize, hey, there's another world out there different than what they're telling us here. So, so even though I understand the reason for not wanting it, um, 
I think it was it was misguided. However, now that it's been in place for that long, now that they have skirted all those uh, blockade restrictions, now that they have been able to buy and spend most of Cuba's money in weapons instead of food and medicine for the people, I think now is not the time to take the foot off the gas. Because I think now the generals, the military in Cuba controls the flow of money completely. They own all the hotels, all the resorts, all the tourism. They have nothing. They can't export revolution anymore. They can't export conflict, except to places like the United States, where so naive, where people can talk socialism. But other than that, they can't export anything else. So now is the time to keep our foot on their neck until they choke, until Cuba's free. Yeah, I, I agree. It's the timing. You know, I always said. Uh, one one of the factors that brought the Soviet Union down, in my opinion, you know what it was? McDonald's. <laughs> That's actually what brought me down. Let me tell you why. When I saw the news the first time, the, the weather was something like 20 degrees outside, and the first McDonald's had opened up in Moscow, and there were lines of people outside, like for five blocks, in that kind of weather, to get a Big Mac and fries. I thought they're done. It's over. It's over. Okay. So, and it turned out to be right. So, initially, I agree. I agree. Totally agree with him. Now it's the wrong time. Now we, you really have to keep the foot down. But there was a time where. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it brought, it brought the Soviet Union down. You opened a McDonald's in Havana today. You know, it's a point that we talked about offline before. Uh, the conditions have to be there. Mm-hmm. And, and Trump put it beautifully. He says, you know, we're more than willing to open if you allow any kind of business to go there and start a business. Allow the Cubans here, anybody, to go and open a hamburger joint or whatever, whatever, whatever in Havana and through the island and see what happens. But they won't do that. They will not do that because they can't control it. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, a lot of industries in, in Cuba, from Italy and all other countries, uh, they pay their workers. Uh, they don't pay the workers in, in, you know, they pay the workers in Cuba money. The government exchanges that, and the worker gets paid in, in the Cuba. It's not even money. In, in Cuba, they have something called CEUs, which is a piece of paper that allows you to buy, you know, half a pound of rice every two weeks or whatever. Uh, it's, it's not dollars. So so all that money actually stays in the government. That doesn't go to the people. So so some if conditions are met the right way, yeah, I, I think I think it's a. Uh, but, you know, I think the bubble is, is going to burst. This time, I really think the bubble uh, is, is getting ready to burst. Well, I, I'm thinking, too, um, you know, now that you say that the McDonald's in the Russia kind of whatever, and I have the back of your book to hit, Dr. Fred, where you were on Miami Vice, which, which makes me yeah. think to myself, right now, down in Cuba... And I don't know if you even know the answer because I didn't think of this. What's TV like there? Like I know, like you know, they, they were protesting about internet restrictions. But if I'm a Cuban, and this is for people out there who may not know, and I don't even know if you guys know at the moment, but what are my television options? Do I have cable? Do I have uh, what? What do they have there? Do you know? 
that they have government TV. That's it. That's it. So, government they, so TV. they're not going to get to see you in Miami Vice. <laughs> no, no. Soviet style government TV. Let, let me contrast that. Uh, according to the UN, not my saying, because you know, one thing that I, I like, I told you last time, I like to avoid because we fall into the temptation of idealizing the past. And that's not, that's normal, that's natural. You know, my grandmother's cookies were the best ever, ever, and nobody makes them like her. You know, that kind of thing. I don't want to fall into that. So I rely on the United Nations statistics in Cuba in 1958. I have them all. And I forget exactly the number, but radio stations, talk about media, there were 120-some private radio stations in Cuba in 1958. Hmm. All right? Uh, TV was like American TV. They had shows that rivaled uh, American shows. Uh, they had, and I was there one time, they, they had a show uh, in CMQ, which is the, the biggest, uh, had studios in Havana that could rival anything here, CBS, NBC, whatever, uh, because it was sold from here. Okay. And they had a, a show, a circus, and Gali for four Miliki. The whole island watched this, this the circus show on TV, and uh, and they had guests. Uh, so my my parents took me for my birthday. It's all I wanted, and they took me to Havana this one time. And I was on the show. I came on TV, and you know, where are you from? I'm from San Juan de los Lleras, and you know, and, and I sat in the studio and watched the show. Uh, it was uh, entertainment. Yeah, don't take my word. Look at the stats. Look at the number of singers, the number of people doing TV. Uh, we had a guy called Manolo Ortega who did the news 8 o'clock every night. And the news was sponsored by uh, Atuey Beer. Atuey was, a, uh, by the way, Cuba had three uh, three famous beer brands in 58. Okay. Uh, Atuey was a sponsor of the, of the news. And at the end of every news broadcast at 8.30, Ended up in the news that's been brought to you by Hatue, the great beer of Cuba, and he would pour the beer on, on a trumpet stein, and he would down the stein in one hit. <laughs> Good night. Okay. Imagine Walter Cronkite drinking a Budweiser after, after the news. You know? So it was a, you know, the standards in Cuba were, were super high, super high. So today it's just normal radio, no. normal press, and all yeah. that in a way overnight. Mm. No radio, yeah. no TV, no press other than what the government. No. Today it's just control, 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 control. Uh, it's it's a it's Soviet style. They live in the dinosaur era. It's a Soviet style, you know. And and in Batista, even on the worst times with Batista, you know there were newspapers that had an opposing view. Right. It was a Diario La Marina, which had an opposing view, had editorials hmm. criticizing the Batista government. And they had one that was called Zigzag, which was like a, like a National Lampoon type thing with characters like that. Uh, and, and they really cut into Batista, you know, criticizing. So, uh, you know, freedom of the press. Yeah, yeah. that's all gone. That's, that all disappeared. What is the, from both of you guys' opinion, I'm assuming, um, I mean, I know you guys speak to a lot of people in the Cuban community. Would you say that there are more people in favor of the embargo, uh, like you guys said, like at this point, let's keep the pressure on and end this? Or there are people out there who disagree with that and think, you know, we need to open it up and maybe if we do, 
get McDonald's down there, which I don't <laughs> think they would ever allowed. Um, the McRib is back this month, and we might be able to, you know, get Cuba back. Or do you think that it's? Are you guys in the majority? I, I think we are, uh, from an exile community uh, point of view. Uh, it is true that the younger Cuban generations are perhaps uh, losing the fervor that our generation has. Um, but I, I believe we're still a majority. Uh, and I'm going to guess a big majority. I'm talking 70, 75% uh, of the exile Cubans feel that we, we shouldn't open the door yet because all, all we're going to do is feed, feed the beast uh, that's there already and make it stronger. And what we need is for the people to continue being discontent and hopefully to speak up. Uh, and the, is that what's driving the current protests, you believe? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Uh, things have not been improving in Cuba and the country. They've been deteriorating. So if there was little food before, there's even less now. If there was little gas and electricity, there's l there are less now. So people are getting more and more impatient. And because there has been a big increase in tourism from the time that Fred and I left uh, to now, especially in the last few years, we first, when Obama opened, a lot of Cubans were able to visit with the families and then with the Europeans, Canadians, etc. It didn't even South Americans now. A lot of it's a big, big Mexican tourist uh, contingent in Cuba. Uh, they are they're now aware of, of what's available right. to, to other people. Mm. So I, I, I think that's what's driving it. And I think that if we, if we feed him now, if we feed that beast now, it's, uh, it's just going to prolong the suffering. So. Yeah, I agree. If, if the country was, you know, if the, the communists were removed and Cuba became an open and free, uh, free country, I'm assuming you two would go back and visit. For sure. My case. Yep. Yeah. I like to see bucket list type thing. Uh, yes. I like to see the house where I lived, if it's still there. I think it's still there. I like to see it. Uh, that house was my my grandfather's house. He built it. And then my father lived in it. And I lived in it. Uh, then when I left, my aunt uh, lived in it. And then uh, they came. Uh, it's a big house, you know, three bedrooms. But it's a big house, big property with a big backyard that you can put horses and stuff like that. And, and uh, at one point, when my aunt was living there with her husband and her son, daughter, uh, the government came and said, "This house is too big for you. Okay, it's too big for you. You need to bring more people here." So they they put another family in the house. You couldn't say anything. They put another family in the house, and this family was uh, was bad. They, they stole some things from my aunt or whatever, and and eventually, uh, I mean, it's, it's a sad story. I didn't want to make this like into a, you know, but uh, her daughter committed suicide because she had no means of leaving, nothing, lost all hope. Uh, and my aunt uh, died, basically, under those conditions. Her husband... Uh, was sick, was not treated at the hospital because they knew he was not, you know, a revolutionario. You know, he was he was against the government, so he's a second class citizen. So so he died died bled to death in a hospital, uh, you know, aisle, uh, and then she eventually died. Uh, and I look back and I go, wow, that's that was her life, really. 
a woman that was, uh, you know, happy and great and raising her kids and, you know, uh, those, that's a human side that's ignored, I would say, on purpose by what we call the media. But what we call the books have written and movies have been made, yada, 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 yada. No, no, no. Nobody has captured the human side. Uh, and, 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 you know, it could be true in, in East and West Germany. You know, we know that in East Germany, they used to throw kids over the fence. They used to throw babies over the fence so they wouldn't grow up in East Germany. Uh, so we know the stories. And, and, I, have an, and I have a friend, an older guy. Who lived that and when I talked to him he goes I lived that too so he understands believe me when you've gone through it it's a whole different meaning that than you heard it from you know a movie or a documentary or whatever uh, you know so and honestly uh, that story that you just heard from Fred uh, repeated itself yes a million households a million households Absolutely. Anybody who owns a piece of property or a home, it suddenly wasn't yours anymore. And if exactly. the guy in the neighborhood who was in the, in the Communist Party decided that he wanted your house because it was better than his, well, yeah, this house is That's it. We're out of here. Yeah. And There's a very powerful scene in the um, Andy Garcia movie, which name I am forgetting right now because I'm out of it, but uh, where the... Lost City. Yes, this the I believe that the the godson slash nephew goes to his uncle's plantation to basically you know he's a revolutionary to tell him like we're taking your farm, and he's like you know you're my blood I, this has been a, and the guy has a heart attack but it's just a it's a powerful scene as to to what happened and, and again just yet another thing that I and I think the majority of people don't know I, I think the the narratives of what we have seen on TVs over the years men with beards came out of the mountains. <laughs> seized Cuba and now they're communists there and communists of course are bad but there's so much more to the story and, and the, the people of Cuba um, and I think it's important for the, the you know people in the United States to know this that the exact same as us and gentlemen like you had the exact same upbringing as me the difference being at age five and six and um, I forget the exact ages you had your life uprooted um, and, and, and you know the, the journey that you would take as a five-year-old to just go to America I, I, I don't think I would have made it. I, I think I would have been probably dead or something within five years. I was a little older than him, okay? okay. I'm a little older. Uh, I left older. I left when I was 12. So I. Oh, you were 12. Okay. Yeah, well, same thing then. Uh, I left. I was uh, 13 when I left, 1961. And it was many things. Uh, and that's a story that's it's, it's in the book. Uh, uh, we saw it. And my friends and I were conspiring to do something against uh, Castro, and we were painting things on the walls and and uh, planning to go to the mountains and who you got a gun, I got a gun, whatever we can get a gun, that that kind of thing. Thirteen year old innocent, stupid kids, and uh, and we thought nobody knew in a small town. We thought nobody knew what we were planning until one night a friend of a family. Uh, came to our house at nine o'clock at night. You know, nine o'clock at night in a small town is, is late. And he knocked on the door really hard and, you know, startled with my dad. Was, what, what do you want? Because I need to talk to you. So the man told my father, I said, look, uh, I need to tell you about your son. I said, what's going on? I said, well, your son 
he's meeting with so and so and so. Everybody knows what they're doing. Everybody knows what they're trying to do. You need to get him out of here because either he's going to disappear or they're going to kill him. Okay, he's going to go to jail. Or they're going to kill him or whatever. And that night, my dad decided that that I had to I had to leave. So we started all the the things uh, through the church, you know, like the Peter Pan program. We talked about that. Uh, the Methodist Church had something similar, so we worked it out and that and that. And I left a town that I used to, I used to play in, friends and all that, in the middle of the night, hiding in the, in the seat of a car with a blanket on top of me to go to Havana to stay with my aunt for a while until the visa. The permit came in. That's the way I left uh, my town. Uh, that's it's like out of a movie, and and it's real. Okay, so things like that, you know, you don't forget. And I think the older we get, you agree. I don't know. The older we get, the more it it, it, it impacts your life. I think. And, and Dr. Ladon, I think you mentioned in the podcast you also had to make a plan to get out of Cuba. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, just going back to what Craig was just talking about, imagine that you live in your town here in the USA and you have a neighbor, for example, who's, who's got a small farm at the end of the street and is growing avocados. And you have another fellow who's opened, you know, three or four stores in town and is now a successful store owner. And all of a sudden you walk in and there's, like in Fred's case, somebody at his father's farm saying, okay, this is no longer your farm. This now belongs to the people. Right. Or in my grandfather's case, uh, showing up in their warehouse in Havana Harbor and saying, you know, your warehouse that you, you and your partners built for the last 30 years of import-export from Spain is no longer a viable business. This belongs to the state now. That was that. I think that's an important message for all of us from coming from both of you as far as, like, what happens under socialism or communism, and call it, I guess, but... Yeah, the same. Often goes overnight. So, and, and I gotta tell you, my my memories of growing up in Cuba are definitely divided into two sections, like I said before in the podcast. Mm -hmm. One was, you know, I'm young, my father is great, and, and you know, well-known anesthesiologists were having a normal life uh, and then suddenly all this happens and the moment that they realize that you're not with the program you become an outcast you know, all of a sudden the, the neighborhood committee is watching every move that you make yeah. the friends that played with you on the street no longer want to play some of them will call you a gusano or a worm because they know that you're now thinking of leaving Cuba and right. you know the, the things that before we took for granted, like getting a Christmas present or buying food, became our daily obsession because there was no food in Cuba. So everything was through the black market. You know, with your ration card, you got a couple of eggs a week, pound of rice a month, or whatever the rations were, if they had them. And then through the black market, you would get everything else. And uh, that was our life, you know. And and one of the things that shocked me. Um, Tremendously, and I want to I want to share this with you because I think this is very telling. I I had I've grown a, a tricycle or whatever. I, I really wanted a bicycle. And bicycles in revolutionary Cuba were impossible to get. The only two bicycles came from China. Yeah. They were very poorly made, and it was almost impossible to get a hold of. 
But that was my wish list for my parents for Christmas. I want a bike, I want a bike. This went on for two or three years. Obviously, nobody could find me a bike, even, not even my father with his connections. And, and on the weekends after the revolution, one of the few things that we could still do that was kind of nice is we could rent a cabana for the day at the pool of the Riviera Hotel. Um, and you spend the day by the pool, and they had a little bar, a little, uh, you know, uh, concession where you could buy some things, which in Cuba at that time it was almost unheard of. It was great to go there. And sometimes we would invite our cousins if they were visiting Havana. And one day, I had a couple of my cousins, and we must have been 10 uh, or 11, and we went into the lobby of the hotel, which we're not supposed to. And then we saw this big staircase, and we went down the staircase, you know, you know, laughing and thinking, oh, my God, we're so brave. You know, you know, we're not supposed to be here. And we went downstairs, and all of a sudden we saw all these people going into these double doors, and we looked inside. Imagine a kid that now for the last few years, when his cognizant sees complete empty store shelves, whether it's a grocery store, yeah. Or, or, or a department store. And when these doors opened, he was like looking at Macy's. It was shelves of goods, but most important, right in the front, on a, on a raised platform, was a beautiful red Schwinn bike with a beautiful headlight in the front. And I went inside and this guy just grabbed me and said, what are you doing here? Get outside. So we left and I said, mom, mom, you gotta come and see this. You gotta come and see this. What? What? So I go downstairs. Well, it turns out it's a foreigners-only store. Only people who are non-Cubans can go in there and buy. Right. Well, luckily for us, we had a lot of connections with foreigners. Symphony Orchestra, my uncle, and that Christmas, that red bike was in my house. My mother gave them dollars, whatever they had to do to get that bike in my room. And, and that was life in Cuba. It was, it was, you know, first hoping that you don't get beat up by the guys who are calling you worms, finding food, uh, sometimes buying in, in, in the black market and getting a, a, a six-foot tape, tapeworm like I did at age 11 mm. because black market meat wasn't inspected and so mm. on. And if we undercooked it a little bit, there we, there we went. And then finding <laughs> out that, that we had no medicine in Cuba Tapeworm, and by that time I'm 90 or I don't know. I was a really chubby kid when I got to 11, and then suddenly I was like a skeleton because this tapeworm was eating everything I ate. And luckily, my father still had enough connections to call East Germany and with a connection there, and they sent what I imagine was. uh, Curantel. I don't know what other drugs we had back in the in the 60s for for uh, this type of worm, but uh, had after two weeks of of misery because believe me, having a big worm is not a fun thing for a kid, and perhaps another thing to discuss in the podcast. <laughs> but but finally, after two weeks, I was able to get these wafers that I would eat twice a day instead of meals for a week, and sure enough, after a week, I expelled this. Five foot six uh, inches uh, long uh, pork tapeworm. Uh, oh, wow! Uh, so it, that, that was life. It, was, it mm. became a struggle to do everything, you know. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was yeah. a very different life than what was remembered before. You know, speak, speaking mom, of, uh, 
Not to interrupt you, but it's just hit me in the head. that, And I know you guys have some place to be, and I don't want to hold you here forever. But I have one last quick question that I think we may even have to do a different podcast for. But you're both doctors, correct? So what do you feel about the medical, I guess, system, the, you know, the healthcare system in Cuba right now? I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people here want to see Medicare for all, socialized medicine, et cetera. What is your opinion on that down there? And again, I know I'm sure the two of you could talk on this subject for six <laughs> hours, but just briefly, what, what maybe you think about that? Well, let me tell you something. Like everything else, like every question about Cuba, all those things, we have to take them, we have to, uh, take them in perspective and, and, and contrast. Uh, Cuba had an incredible medical system before Castro, one of the best in the world. Okay, uh, original HMOs. Guess where they started? Started in Cuba. Cuba invented the HMO. Okay, and, and that's that's a fact. I'm not just you know. Uh, uh, we had famous famous doctors who did private practice, but they would go two or three days a week or whatever to uh, to public clinics. Uh, patients were picked up, little bosses, just just like HMOs here, taken to the clinics and so on. So uh, it, so you had to start at that point. Okay, that they did have a great, great uh, healthcare system uh, in the fifties. Okay, so fast forward, uh, you know, the doctors are sending to other countries or whatever, mostly for political purposes and uh, political favors. Uh, I, I just met, as a matter of fact, personal story. I just had my follow-up, my my PCP, uh, he retired some years back, which I hated because I, I've known the guy for like 40 years. And of course, he replaced, uh, uh, he had a, a, you know, a couple of PAs or whatever, but they, I, I walked in last week for a follow-up physical, and I see a new guy. I go, oh, wow, new guy. And I see his name is Quintana, and I go, oh, okay. Uh, where are you from, of course? And of course, he's from Cuba, whatever, but from the later generation, he studied medicine in Cuba and the whole, the whole thing came in the, the year 2000. And he told me some stories. He told me so straight from the, straight from the source, uh, what they knew, what they learned, how they had to improvise, how they had to disinfect instruments because they had nothing, uh, you know, modern to, to for disinfection and so on. Uh, and he was sent to several countries, uh, you know, Costa Rica and some other countries. Uh, so uh, they improvise, they adapt, they overcome, just like the mechanics uh, in Cuba, the best mechanics in the world are probably in Cuba because they've had to improvise and keep those 50s cars running with uh, cannibalized uh, parts from here and there. The same thing happens in medicine. So, you know, uh, socialized medicine, uh, if it was so great, I guess you would see thousands of people taking boats to go to, to, go to Cuba and live there. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> no, we don't have enough time for this because this is really a, a, a theme that we could talk on forever. But just to reiterate what Fred just said, the, the healthcare system in Cuba right now for Cubans is non-existent. They have no medicines, they have no supplies. Have yep. For 40 years in a community full of Cubans who had family in Cuba. And I've spent 40 years sending medicines and samples to Cuba because sometimes if you needed surgery, you had to bring your own sutures, your own sheets to the hospital, your own IVs. 
and your own antibiotics. The medical system that they touted was a tourist medical system, which was for show, to showcase Cuban medicine because Cuba made a name of exporting doctors. Mm-hmm. But that health system was not available to Cubans. And because I was Canadian for many years and my father died in Canada, I have a lot to say about the Canadian system. So <laughs> maybe in another podcast we can discuss. I was going to say, I, I was going to bring up Canada. I, I think we should have a, a, a podcast <laughs> on the yeah. 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 All I will tell you is that my father, a professor of medicine at the University of Ottawa and at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia, died because of the Canadian socialized medical system. Mm. While waiting for a cardiac catheterization, for at least a six to 12 week period that he had to wait after a positive stress test. I would have had, if he was a homeless person in Newark, New Jersey, presented to the emergency room when I was on call, I would have had him catheterized the next morning. Here he was in Canada, waiting for six weeks to get catheterized. And of course, Christmas Eve, he dropped dead of a heart attack mm. on his way to the operating room because he wasn't called. Up. I'm sorry, so, doctor. So uh, I have a lot to say about the Canadian. Mm. And I've heard similar stories from other people about the Canadian social health care system as well. Yeah, We, we may have yeah. to have a show uh, yeah, on that. Yeah. But gentlemen, listen, we, we're coming to the end of our hour, and I know mm-hmm. that both of you had places to be, and I know you want to go see your grandsons. <laughs> uh, I want to first thank you so, so much for coming on our small program here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are incredible for doing so. And for everyone watching, again, Tarmac, Dr. Fred Valdez, it is an incredible story of his growing up in Cuba. And of course, don't forget Dr. Ray Ladon. A cold July in Cuba, his story, they are both equally amazing. And something tells me you may see them or some of their friends back here to continue discussing (laughs) Cuba. Gentlemen, again, I cannot thank you enough. And everyone, don't forget, you can subscribe to our podcast on YouTube or Rumble. Of course, we're here on Facebook also. We're on all of the social media platforms as well as all of the podcasting formats. So once again, doctors, thank you. Enjoy. I'll let you take us out. Yes, thank you, doctors. I've very much important message to share with the people here so people know what it's like living under communism uh, not forget the freedoms we have here in america that's right i'm not losing my it's been a pleasure and, and thank you so much for having me thank, thank you. you and thank you to our listeners and like mark said if you missed any of the episode today or the first three you can Go back to our website, www.ascf.us. Also, subscribe to our channel on YouTube and Rumble by typing in American Security Council Foundation. Please join us again next time as we bring you the stories on protecting our freedoms. Bye-bye, everybody.